This is Behind the Lens, a podcast from The Lens, New Orleans' first nonprofit, nonpartisan public interest newsroom. I'm Carolyn Heldman. On this week's episode, the Orleans Parish Assessor has once again inaccurately granted property tax exemptions to Folgers Coffee Company, this time for over $100 million worth of property. The Louisiana legislature will consider two bills this session that seek to address the troubled state of health care in Louisiana prisons. And a proposed property tax dedicated to early childhood education could also see a hefty payout to the New Orleans Public Schools District under a contract approved by the Orleans Parish School Board this week. Those stories, insight, and analysis coming up on Behind the Lens. Joining us this week, government and cultural economy reporter Michael Isaac Stein. Hey, Michael. Hey, Carolyn. Criminal justice reporter Nick Crastle. Hey, Nick. Hey, Carolyn. Education reporter Marta Jusen's here. Hey, Marta. Hi, Carolyn. Lens editor Charles Maldonado. Hi, Charles. Good morning. Michael, up first with you, Orleans Parish Assessor Errol Williams has once again admitted to inaccurately granting property tax exemptions for Folgers Coffee Company, this time for roughly $160 million of property. Williams is vowing to go back and collect millions in unpaid taxes, but it remains unclear what Folgers actually owes. What happened here? Yeah, so, you know, we're talking about um, a program. It's called the uh, Industrial Tax Exemption Program. Um, it's a state-run tax program, the kind of the big, biggest business subsidies that the, the state kind of hands out. And rules with that program have changed in recent years to allow uh, local governing bodies like city council, school boards, sheriffs, and, and other taxing authorities um, to, to have a say in whether these exemptions were given out. Historically, um, that's been up to the state alone, and the state has generally, you know, almost automatically approved these tax exemptions. Um, I just wanted to, to add that it's a, it, it is a property tax program, and property taxes, um, property taxes go to uh, municipalities and parishes, not the state, but for years until this was changed, it was it was only the state and not the local governments that were actually affected by the tax abatement that was making the decision. Right. Yeah, exactly. And, and so that local control was put to the test, um, you know, in 2020 and 2021 um, with these kind of six applications that Folgers Coffee Company had put in. Um, again, somewhere in the realm of $160 million worth of new property investments um, that they were seeking to get exempted. In that case, um, the, these new rules kicked in and local authorities in New Orleans, you know, I think universally rejected all six of these tax exemptions. So none of them were supposed to go into place. Folgers should have never received any of these, these exemptions. It was pretty crystal clear that these were rejected. However, the assessor nonetheless put those exemptions on the tax rolls, basically granting Folgers these tax exemptions, even though they had never been granted by the state, and even though they had been uh, explicitly rejected at the local level. And, and, you know, the reason for this appears to be a policy that his office has had, which is to basically any time a company applies for one of these ITEP exemptions, he, he will put it on the rolls and he will apply the exemption before it's been officially granted. And, and that's kind of a layover from, from, post, from, from previous years when the state was in full control and the state would you know, almost automatically grant every single one of these exemptions. Um, you know, it seems like his office kind of by routine would grant these exemptions before, you know, get, again, getting that official approval. You know, again, in this case, you know, we're talking about exemptions um, that have been counted since 
going back to 2019, you know, four years ago, even though they were never granted. And again, even though these local bodies rejected these exemptions, and, and it was pretty well covered in the media um, at the time. It was a kind of a, a well-watched um, issue in the city. So again, some people are questioning why the assessor, you know, wouldn't have been paying attention to that and how these exemptions could have remained active. So he's just rubber stamping, in other words, and then saying, we're going to catch up with this paperwork later. You know, it's it's not exactly rubber stamping. I mean, I, I think we should be clear that the assessor's office is not in charge of granting or rejecting these exemptions. It's only about whether he's applying them to his assessments of these properties. So so it's it's basically his job, you know, to say what on your property, what your property is worth and how much of it is eligible for taxation. So, yeah, I, I mean, in this case, yeah, he's basically, you know, more or less rubber stamping. I just want to be clear that he's not actually making the decision about whether to reject or grant these. These mistakes were first pointed out in a public letter by a group called Together New Orleans, who, who's done a lot of work on, on ITEPs and have pointed out, you know, mistakes in the assessor's office in the past. But, you know, I talked to um, an organizer with that group, um, Broderick Baggart. He pointed out that this makes him very anxious because, it, you know, he pointed out that his group did not do a top to bottom audit of all exemptions, all ITEPs in, in Orleans Parish or in the state. And, and you know, Folgers has, you know, we'll get into this. Folgers has been an issue in the past. So I think they looked at these properties with some particular interest. But, you know, again, it raises the question of why did you need an outside group to catch this mistake? What would have happened if they did it? And is this going to, to spark some kind of internal review of these properties to make sure that this hasn't happened, you know, for other companies? Right. Is it being, well, is it happening? Have been promised such a review? So... Yeah. So, uh, yeah, we faced a super similar issue back in, in, in 2019. Almost the same issue. This was basically, you know, a, an ITEP is valid for a maximum of 10 years. It's initially granted for, for five years, and then you have to uh, uh, submit a renewal application for a second five years. So th what we were facing back then was that some of the Folgers properties did not get, it had their renewals rejected. Um, and nonetheless, the assessor was just assuming that they were going to get that five-year renewal. Now, back then, his office did uh, promise a full review, and I believe he found millions of more properties, uh, millions of dollars worth of property that, that he, he ended up adding. Um, I, I will note that, uh, you know, after this whole debacle in 2019, the city council passed a resolution saying you need to create a new written policy around how you're implementing these ITEP exemptions, you know, especially now that local control exists, you need to be more careful that you're not just automatically assuming these applications will be granted. Now, the assessor is an elected position, meaning the city council doesn't have, you know, full power to direct him to do anything they want. And in this case, they actually could not obligate him to make that written policy. They could only suggest it. Um, and at that meeting, at the time, he actually told us that he in, did not intend to write a new policy. In fact, he told us that he was going to stick with his existing policy, the same policy that led to these issues in 2019. Um, we asked him at the time, number one, whether you know, his existing policy would catch similar issues in the future. He told us explicitly it would not. And we asked him why he would continue with a policy that he knew had this potential flaw in it. Uh, and I'll just read you uh, his quote here, uh, which is, quote, it's not the greatest priority for our office, obviously, unquote. 
So, yeah. you know, again, we dealt with this issue. The city council said you need to create, you know, a new policy. He refused. And now we find ourselves facing the exact same problem. Well, so, so, okay. So just a couple things. One, you, you would think, I would think, that since ITEP rejection votes, they're not terribly common. They've only happened a few times in, in the city, um, that, that it wouldn't be too difficult for the uh, for the assessor's office to just monitor those. Um, secondly, correct me if I'm wrong, Michael, but the, the assessor has consistently blamed you know sort of uh, paperwork problems from from the state. Um, so I guess you know what what is supposedly happening and on the state's end that that he believes is creating this problem. Yeah. So, so, you know, what we've been told in the past and, and what he's indicating now, you know, like Charles is saying, he's again kind of pointing the finger at, at the state, um, you know, the, the, the state board that, that approves these exemptions. Um, you know, his point is basically that, again, he has this policy of assuming that applications will be accepted and therefore he applies except these exemptions before they've been granted. I mean, we know that's what he's done in the past. He's explicitly said, you know, this is what I do. He has said that he wants, before he's going to go back and take anything off the rolls, he waits for rejections, explicit rejections to come from the state. And he argues that the state needs to do a better job of notifying local assessors um, when one of these rejections happen. Now, I, I think what some of the assessor's critics and, and what the state would argue here is that he shouldn't have been applying these in the first place until he gets a notification that it's been granted, right? So it, it shouldn't be that, okay, an applicant, because he, he is notified when an app, a new application is submitted. But, you know, the state argues that at that point, you should not be granting and applying these exemptions. So you shouldn't have to wait for a rejection before you take it away. They're saying it's the opposite. You need to wait until you get the notification that it's been officially granted before you apply it. So I, I think that's kind of, you know, it's it's simplified a little bit, but I think that in, in broad terms is is the 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 conflict there. Yeah, well, and keep in mind too, he's <laughs> he's talking about waiting on a, a notification coming from a, a state department in Baton Rouge when a lot of these decisions are happening literally three floors down from him. Um, so, you know, kind of getting back to my original point, my first point about how it would not, doesn't seem to me to be terribly difficult to, to monitor local action on this himself. Exactly. And it's also, you know, I, I think what, what, what the state has said in the past is that all he has to do, if he's wondering about the, the, the uh, status of a certain application, I mean, there's an online database. And if there's any questions about the online database, he can call that office. You know, that they're, they're pretty responsive when I ask questions. I imagine they are even more responsive when an elected local assessor calls them. So, you know, again, it's this same conversation that we've been having since 2019, which is why are you sitting back and, and, and kind of waiting for someone to tell you to take away these exemptions rather than proactively making sure that they're accurately applied? Um, you know, that, that is the big question. Yeah, and especially when it comes to Folgers. I mean, you know, Folgers is, is, is either the, the, the biggest or, or the second biggest ITEP uh, beneficiary in the city, and uh, it has been pretty much the story uh, locally about ITEP. So, you, you, you know, I, I guess, I guess, you know, um, Mr. Bagger, that sort of uh, uh, sort of underlines his point about how often is this happening? Because I mean, this is this if, if you're going to monitor any 
any uh, you know ITEP recipient company, you would think Folgers would be at or near the top of the list. So for the last four years that he hasn't been assessing this, has, has the city been losing out on that tax revenue? Is that yeah? yeah how, how how much is that? So it's a little bit up in the air exactly how much. The estimates we've seen, um, you know, from from the assessor's office, it, they put it somewhere around six and a half million dollars. Together, New Orleans, they peg it at closer to, to nine or ten million dollars. So, so to kind of outline why there's some confusion, you know, again, th this was initially brought up in a letter by Together New Orleans um, that was sent to the assessor and some public officials and, and you know, some members of the media. And the assessor a couple of days later responded with a letter saying, you know, yes, uh, Together New Orleans is correct. Um, we have left these off the rolls. Um, here's how much we think they owe. And, and, and that's where we get the $6.5 million figure for. Now, Together New Orleans argues that's an undercount. And, and we have been trying to work with the office, with the assessor's office, to understand why there's a difference between what Together New Orleans thinks and what the assessor thinks. Now, where it gets confusing is that late last night, you know, they had been arguing that Together New Orleans was using flawed numbers um, and that their numbers were different because the assessor was using the actual numbers, the official numbers to calculate this. Um, now, late last night, they kind of changed their tone on this a bit, and they started saying that the assessor's numbers that he released in that response to Together New Orleans are also incorrect. But they are incorrect for different reasons than Together New Orleans says they are incorrect. However, they will not tell us why they are incorrect by the assessor's own you know, uh, uh, estimation of it. So it, it, it's pretty confusing at this point exactly what the numbers are or exactly why the assessor's initial estimate was, was incorrect. But you know, we can broadly say that, that over the last four years, we're looking at something like six to nine million dollars in back taxes. Um, as well as going forward, I mean, this is going to be upwards of, you know, a million dollars a year in recurring revenue. So you'll be there to keep an eye on it for us. Thank you, Michael. Yeah, thank you, Carol. You're listening to Behind the Lens. I'm Carolyn Heldman. My guests this week are government and cultural economy reporter Michael Isaac Stein, criminal justice reporter Nick Krastel, education reporter Marta Jusen, and Lens editor Charles Maldonado. Hi, I'm Ann Muller, Chief Operating Officer at The Lens. The Lens is the New Orleans area's first nonprofit, nonpartisan public interest newsroom dedicated to unique investigative and explanatory journalism. We have a diverse set of financial supporters, including major national foundations, local foundations, and dedicated readers in the New Orleans area. Please make a tax-deductible donation to support our work at thelensnola.org slash donate. Thank you. Okay, Nick, the state legislature has two bills coming up that seek to improve prison health care. What do these two bills do? Yeah, so one of them would eliminate medical co-pays for people who are incarcerated in, in Louisiana state prison. So currently, um, for, for various medical medical procedures and, and prescriptions, uh, prisoners have to pay, you know, somewhere from, from $2 to $6 um, as, as a copay when they get treatment in prisons. So one bill would, would eliminate that. And then another would set up medical advisory council for the prison system as a whole that would have various oversight and would have to sort of approve 
uh, the hiring of a medical director for the prison system, at, um, among a few other things. So those are those are the two bills. And who makes up this advisory council? The council would consist of kind of heads of, of various um, uh, medical disciplines, so cardiology, family practice, um, oncology, psychology, and psychiatry, as well as the heads of the medical schools at Tulane and LSU and, and the, the Xavier University College of Pharmacy. So this board would be, like I said, in charge of approving a medical director. And this is sort of a big deal. The, the current medical director for the Department of Corrections is a, a doctor named Randy Lavisphere, and he was previously the, the director of the medical director at, at Louisiana State Penitentiary at Angola, the state's largest prison. And Dr. Lavisphere, like, like many doctors who work at the Department of Corrections, um, has sort of a, a checkered past. He had his medical license revoked back in 2006 after a conviction. Um, he was convicted of possession with intent to distribute um, meth. And he actually served served several years in federal prison himself. Sort of an interesting thing about, about Louisiana prisons is, is this is, is when a doctor gets their license revoked, it can get reestablished in sort of this probationary way in which basically doctors are only allowed to work in institutional settings and one of those, you know, institutional settings being prison. So really they're not, they're not allowed to work, you know, in a hospital or, or in the community. Um, and that leads to, to many of them getting hired, hired by the prison system. So the current director, um, you know, has had, had this, you know, not only, not only these legal issues, but also, when he was at Louisiana State Penitentiary, there, there was a lawsuit over, over medical care there, and a federal judge found that it violated the United States Constitution, that they, they were deliberately deliberately indifferent to, to medical, the medical needs of, of people in custody there. So kind of despite those things, he, he has risen through the ranks and become the, the top medical director of the Louisiana prison system. Um, so the people proposing this bill are, uh, point to that and say, you know, this person should have never been hired if if he was out in the community, he would never be responsible for such sort of a wide range of of supervision. You have you have eight state run prisons, you know, holding nearly 15,000 prisoners. This is, you know, a pretty, pretty massive responsibility and there should be uh, more oversight. So that's one of the things that I think people who are who are pushing for this bill specifically would like to see is is kind of more professional oversight in, in the hiring. Um, they would also be able to approve uh, policies, uh, you know, medical related policies of, of the prison system, as well as do postmortem reviews. One of the things in the lawsuit against Angola was that they basically don't conduct any comprehensive reviews of, of at when people die. There's no no sort of postmortem review. Um, so that would be another thing that, that this council would, would do. Okay. And the other bill um, about rates that inmates pay for their care and their drugs, can you go into what, what it addresses? Yeah. So it would get rid of this medical copay. And right now, if a, a prisoner has to pay $3 if they, if they have a sick call, so if they're not feeling well, $6 for an emergency visit and $2 for a prescription. And you know, those rates don't seem particularly high, but when you think about prisoners, when, when they're working behind bars, they, they're making 
as little as two cents an hour. So that's sort of the, the, the lowest amount. And, you know, there, there's a, a report that, that was put out last year as part of a, a legislative task force. And the equivalence of those co-pays, if you're, if you're looking at the minimum wage of two cents an hour is, is, you know, over a thousand dollars in real world minimum wage equivalent for a routine visit over $2,000 for an emergency visit, $725 for a prescription. So, you know, those things, that sort of uh, real world, world analogy kind of puts it in, into perspective a little bit. And what people argue is that, that these co-pays, you know, uh, disincentivize people from, from getting care early and, and can force, force prisoners to sort of, you know, hide their medical needs and not get care. Where does that co-pay money go? I think it goes to the Department of Corrections um, and, and, you know, is, a, is kind of a revenue source for them. So that, that will be one interesting thing to see is when these bills come up, kind of whether or not the DOC makes an argument that, that this is a an essential source of revenue. And I'm not sure, I don't know how much specifically they make from it, but Department of Corrections has a massive budget. So I, I doubt that it's a huge proportion, but- uh, Any chance that these bills will pass the legislature? It's a good question. Um, the committee that they are in, the Administration of Criminal Justice is a very conservative, has a very conservative makeup right now. And so maybe the, the people on the committee might not be kind of the most natural allies of the groups who are who are pushing these bills, which are uh, some criminal justice reform groups, um, in particular, Vote, which is Voice of the Experience, that that uh, specifically advocates for people um, who are incarcerated um, or formerly incarcerated. But on the other hand, it's been a pretty rough few years for the Department of Corrections in terms of the medical care uh, and and the lawsuits against them. And I think that, I think, you know, probably even they would, would admit that, that they have some improving to do in terms, in terms of providing medical care to people in their custody. So it's hard to say. And, you know, the Department of Corrections didn't, didn't respond to my request for comment on these bills, but it will be interesting. I don't know that, that these specific bills necessarily, you know, kind of fall on traditional partisan lines in terms of what we see with other criminal justice reform efforts. So it's hard to say. And, and, you know, the Medical Advisory Council, as far as I can tell, doesn't necessarily have a, a fiscal impact. I don't believe that the people serving on the council would be being paid. So it, I'm, I'm not quite sure where the where the pushback will come from, but it very well could be there. So we'll see. Mm. From the outside looking in, it seems like it would be a pretty easy way to for them to burnish their image anyway. Yeah, I mean, and I think that is something that, that the department is aware of right now and is kind of trying to, to work to some degree to at least show that they're, they're trying to, to make improvements. Um, so we'll see. I was shook by that story, Nick. You know, I think it's kind of a complicated, it's a bit of a complicated issue for a lot of the criminal justice reform groups because on the one hand, they really actually advocate for, you know, people who have had prior criminal history to be able to go back and enter the workforce and keep right. working. And, right. and, and, you know, I think they, they would argue that it is okay to, to have some of these doctors working, but there needs to be a lot of oversight and there needs to be, you know, to make sure there are systems in place to, to kind of supervise these people, especially given, given their past histories and, and make sure that they're doing a good job. So 
Right. Is that a law or is it like a, the state medical board policy? I'm just super curious when that went into place. <laughs> yeah, I'm not, I don't know. I don't know the history of it, but it is, it's kind of a stipulation in, in the medical board policy. I think when these uh, when this probationary period starts, that it's it's just institutions, certain institutions that, that doctors can work in. But I'm not sure. I'm not sure when it started or, or, or you know, it'd be, it'd be interesting to. To go yeah, I wonder if it happened before deinstitutionalization or not. That's what kind of what I'm wondering. Yeah, that's a good question. And Nick, I'm just curious about this. Was was his medical license stripped, revoked, or just taken away for a while? Because he still so uses the honor. It was re- it was revoked initially, and then it was it was reinstated in this probationary way. So I think I think between 2006 and 2009, I don't believe he could practice at all. And then in 2009, it was kind of given back in this in this limited way and i believe it's been reinstated fully now okay it's a great story thank you thank you marta a proposed property tax dedicated to early childhood education also looks like there could be a hefty payout to the new orleans public schools district under a contract that was approved by the uh, school board this week can you remind us the history of the tax and how much money it will generate yeah, so this would be a tax that would be dedicated to early childhood education. And consultants have estimated that it would bring in about $21 million per year, which could fund somewhere between 1,000 and 1,500 seats. They've kind of backed off on that initial estimate of 1,500 and, and dropped it down to 1,000, which we'll get into a little bit later. Okay, and so what are the expenses that, they're, that they are transparent about right now? Sure. So the, the district would stand to gain $1.5 million from this. They'd be getting $1,500 per child. Um, they say that they'll be using that for enrollment, uh, verifying that families are eligible for this program, um, and kind of helping them through that enrollment process. Uh, they also said that they would hire staff and improve their data systems, but they didn't really give any specifics on you know how many staff they might be hiring or what positions they might be hiring them in. An agenda for children, which is a the nonprofit involved in this agreement, would uh, be getting about a million dollars a year, and they say that's for staffing oversight and quote quality assurance. And we don't know how much staff they're going to need for this. We don't know how many staff they would use either. I I asked them in, in a follow up, but I haven't heard back yet. Can you extrapolate based on what they already do as far as um, you know, faculty staff to to pupil? Uh, ratio? Is there a way to get a decent stab at it? Yeah, so I think that the question here is that the district already runs this centralized enrollment system, right? And they do it for 45,000 students. So if you add in 1,000 students, why is the district needing $1.5 million to, to take on these additional students? Now, certainly you can argue that they they already do some work for the early childhood side of things. Um, they have about 200 to 400 students that are going through that right now. But still, that's a very small percentage of, you know, 45,000 students. The other argument the district can make, and, you know, I'll tell you, I'm a little bit confused why they wouldn't just flat out say this to me, and I've asked several times, is that in the early childhood process, you're going through a lot more paperwork, a lot more um, work kind of coaching and working with families, um, because this is likely the first time they're entering the education system. But, But isn't Agenda for Children doing a lot of that work? I, they do some of that work, but the district also is going to have to do some of the eligibility and verification stuff. I see. Um, and so, you have to make sure these families stay eligible throughout the time they're enrolled, you know, to continue to get certain funding. So I think there is, 
it is more complicated in early childhood, but you know, is it $1.5 million more complicated? Yeah. 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 Um, so, uh, the other, the other thing I, I wanted to note, and I, I have no idea if this has anything to do with anything, but, um, you know, 1.5 million, um, and correct me if I'm wrong, Marta is traditionally what is, isn't that traditionally what the district had has been getting from the Harris fund from the city council? I believe it's a little bit more than that, but it is in the, the multi-millions, low, yeah. low multi-millions. <laughs> and this does come at a time when the Cantrell administration has indicated that it would like to put the, those Harris funds to other uses. Um, so, you know, I don't, I don't know if that's just, just a coincidence or, 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 or what, but it is something that I noted um, in this story. Yeah, you could read it that they found another way to fill that bucket. Yeah. So who all is asking about expenses? And, and the response so far is just, we don't know yet. I mean, we're asking about expenses yeah. and what they're going to go towards. And, you know, we've gotten some, I would say, vague answers when they say staffing or oversight um, or enrollment systems. I think we we're hoping for a few more details and certainly more details on, you know, what that staffing expansion would look like. The only other thing I would mention is that when we were talking about this in the fall when the tax was first proposed, which, by the way, is going to be on the ballot April 30th, consultants were saying that this would allow for 1,500 seats. That estimate has now dropped to 1,000 seats. And so that was part of our question when we saw that this money would be you know, going to different uses um, was whether or not this was taking seats away. And consultants were quick to say that they were arguing that it wasn't taking any seats away. I think you can see by the number dropping that it potentially was. They were saying they need to build out capacity over the years um, to make sure that they could eventually get to these 1,500 seats mm. or more with the state match. Okay. And tell us about COVID numbers. There are only 11 cases, and I cannot remember the last time I heard a number that low. So that's, that's good news. <laughs> and continues to be a surprise. For me, yeah, at I, least. I mean, like I said last week, I'm still thinking there's going to be a Mardi Gras bump, but I'd, I'd probably pass that now. Right. Um, and really quickly, the they're now down to three finalists, the real finalists for superintendent. Yep. Next week is the big week. Um, the candidates are going to come in on Tuesday for interviews in the morning, um, which will be held at PSB headquarters. And then in the afternoon or evening, they're going to be at George Washington Carver High School uh, for sort of a meet and greet where the public can come in and ask some questions um, and get to know them. And then yeah. the board intends to make a decision the next day on March 30th. And, and, and amazingly and shockingly, we actually have names of these candidates as of the vote. Right. We were happy to see that after, after a little back and forth with the district last week when they move forward quote one or more candidates and you have all the information about them on our website yep you can see their resumes there and uh, we have some background information about them too great all right thanks marta thanks everybody thank you thank you thanks Kayla. see you later this is behind the lens a podcast from the lens new orleans first nonprofit, nonpartisan public interest newsroom i'm carolyn heldman thanks to our guests this week michael isaac stein Nick Crastle, Marta Jusen, and Lens Editor Charles Maldonado. You can read all the week's other news and opinions at our website, thelensnola.org. Thanks for listening.